We are coming again this morning to the book of Isaiah, and today to chapter 45, Isaiah 45, and we'll read verses 18 and 19. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Father, we... Uh, Thank you that you are the God who speaks righteousness, the God who does not speak in secret. And we pray that you would uh, open your word to us even this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our little Sally has recently discovered the game of hide-and-seek. Um, And as a two-year-old, she has a distinct advantage over her parents. She's small enough to hide in laundry baskets, uh, under the aprons of chairs, and all sorts of other tiny little spots that have long become inaccessible to mom and dad. So you would think with that keen ability to find small crevices to hide in that she'd be the best hide-and-seek player in our family. There's only one problem with Sally, as with all two-year-olds, I think, playing hide-and-seek. She thinks being hidden is far less delightful than being found. Do you notice that in children? You know the routine, I'm sure. You finish counting to ten, or you're actually counting to ten, and she goes and hides someplace where you are sure to see her as soon as you open your eyes. But you play along anyway opening the closet door and saying, where's Sally? Is she in the closet? From the other side of the room, you hear a tiny little voice, no. And you bend down and say, is she under the couch? No. And then you begin walking into the next room, only to hear from behind the chair, here I am. (laughs) Children love to be found, don't they? They simply cannot keep quiet as someone goes around the room searching for them. And according to Isaiah 45, the God of the universe, the God who created the heavens and who formed the earth, is much the same. God loves to be found. He does not delay long. He does not keep himself hidden when someone begins earnestly to seek him. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land, he says here in verse 19. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place or in vain as some of your versions translate it. No, God loves to be found. He does not, as so many pagan peoples have been convinced, make us search high and low or go on some pilgrimage to a remote location in order to discover his existence or his will. Nor does God, as modern man sometimes likes to think, suffer us to search and search for him only to come up empty. He has not taught us to seek for him in a waste place. He has not said to us, seek me in vain. On the contrary, he famously says in the book of Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. If you truly go looking for God, in other words, you will find him because God loves to be found. That's what this passage is about. 
Indeed, it's often the case that when you and I find ourselves looking for God in all of the wrong places, he calls out to us from the other direction. Here I am. Here I am. Now, the Israelites, like modern men and women, were prone to think otherwise about God. That's why they sometimes imitated the nations around them and made pilgrimage to the so-called high places of the land. Perhaps they said to themselves, if we get to the top of some mountain, or if we pray at some historic sacred shrine, there we'll find God. Or they sometimes thought, maybe if we had a God we could physically see, then we'd feel a little bit better about our nearness to him. And so they created these idols of wood and stone, the work of their own hands, thinking perhaps these things might bring them closer to God. And it's these same sorts of motivations, actually, that send people today on religious pilgrimage or to mystical, spiritual weekend retreats. It's the same motivation that causes people to hang crucifixes around their necks and to hold them when they pray or to put pictures of Jesus up in their prayer closets. Men and women everywhere are trying somehow to feel less remote from God. But God, as the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, is not far from each one of us. He's not difficult to find, according to Isaiah 45. I've not spoken in secret in some dark land, says the Lord. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. You need not journey to some remote oracle or learn some new form of meditation in order to find God. That's not the kind of God we serve, one who is remote or hidden or who plays hard to get. No, our God is conspicuous, according to this chapter. Our God loves to be found. And thus, if you have eyes to see, he will be plain and obvious to you as the morning sun. Now, it's true, we cannot see God with our physical eyes, right? God is a spirit, not visible matter. So you will never see God himself standing behind the chair or in the closet or on the mountaintop or in the painting. But you can see the fingerprints of God all over the little girl hiding behind the chair creating his image. You can see the handiwork of God all around you when you stand on the mountaintop or in the valley. You can see the intelligence of God and the fact that he has created beings capable of painting the Mona Lisa or the lesser known print hanging up on your living room wall. God is not hard to detect in this grand universe of ours. For Romans 1, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, Paul says, being understood through what has been made. God is conspicuous. He is obvious to anyone who's truly looking and listening. And that's really the one point I want to make this morning. God is conspicuous. And the first way I'd like to drive that home is by elaborating on what I was just saying from Romans 1, namely that God is conspicuous in his world. God is conspicuous in his world. Since the creation of the world, Romans 1.20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. That's what Paul says, and I believe it's what Isaiah is saying here in chapter 45, verse 18. Remember that these two verses, 18 and 19, are primarily intended to remind us that God is not hard to find, that he's not hidden away in some dark land. And that emphasis is 
surely clear in verse 19. But I believe that Isaiah is bolstering this same point that God is conspicuous as he discusses creation in verse 18. God is not hard to find, verse 19. He's conspicuous, and he delights in being found so much so, verse 18, that he has created an entire universe to display his handiwork. Isaiah begins verse 18 simply by reminding us that it is God who created the heavens, the sun and the moon, the stars and the galaxies. All these things are the work of his hands. And if we simply look to the heavens... We will plainly see that God is not obscure, that we don't have to journey to some dark land in order to find him. You cannot long look at the stars as they hang in place, at the moon as it orbits the earth perfectly, at the sun as it exactly to the right temperature warms the earth and lightens it as well. You cannot look at these things and conclude that there is no God or that he has hidden himself from us. God has put his handiwork on display for all of us to see in the heavens. Anyone in Isaiah's day could have looked up and discerned the wisdom and power and existence of God simply by gazing at the sky. And if the people in Isaiah's day could see the intelligent, masterful work of the Creator, how much more can we? What with all of our telescopes and planetariums and documentaries and so on? The more science reveals about the world of outer space, the more there is undeniable evidence of a wise designer. That's what Isaiah is getting at in the first part of verse 18. So it's just as Paul said, God has been clearly seen through what has been made. And that's true not only when we look up at the heavens here in verse 18, but also when we look around at the earth. That's what Isaiah says. The same God, verse 18, who created the heavens is also the one who formed the earth and made it. And when we look at what has been made, according to Paul in Romans 1, we don't grope for a hidden God we find a God who has been clearly seen. Go into a biology classroom and join those ninth graders in dissecting a frog. And ask yourself, is there any way all the biological intricacies inside of this tiny little creature could have come about by chance? Look at the tiny acorn on your front lawn and how it has the capacity for becoming a mighty oak tree. And ask yourself if anything but a supremely intelligent designer could have engineered such a marvel. Pick up a National Geographic video and watch and wonder at the unparalleled agility and muscle mass of a leopard. And consider whether such strength and such deafness could have been produced by mindless evolution. Watch a professional basketball game and ask yourself the same question. Look closely, as Wayne Grudem says, at your hands or at the hands of those biology students in the ninth grade classroom handling scalpels and pens and tweezers and tiny little text message keypads and ask yourself whether or not a mechanical wonder such as the human hand could have come from anything but a designer. Or look at the little girl hiding behind the chair, delighted to be found and loved, and see if you don't find a reflection of 
her maker. Do you see what God and his prophet are saying to us in verse 18? God is far from remote and unknowable. He has left his fingerprints everywhere in creation. In fact, Isaiah says in this verse that we can see the craftsmanship of God, especially in that he did not create the earth a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Do you see that there? We see God's craftsmanship, especially in the fact, not just that he created the earth, but that he did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. The very fact that the earth supports life, the very fact that our planet is capable of being inhabited is evidence of the existence and the goodness and the wisdom and might of God. If the universe, in other words, had really come about simply by the random, impersonal forces of time plus chance, we would not expect an inhabitable planet to have fallen out of the mixture, but rather a random world of chaos, right? That's what happens when you throw things out by random chance. Chaos. You don't open your Coleman camping tent, throw the various pieces skyward, and expect them to fall out in such a way as to keep you warm and dry at night, do you? Much less do you randomly stir billions of biochemicals into a giant soup, cook them for a few billion years, and expect a world to fall out that marvelously suits itself to being inhabited by all sorts of life forms. So, says Isaiah, the very fact that the world is inhabitable, verse 18, the very fact that planet Earth supports life and is not a random waste place, is not a chaos, is further evidence that there is a God who designed it, that he exists, that he's wise, and that he's kind to the creatures who live in this world he's made. Why does planet Earth orbit the sun at precisely the right distance so that the temperature is neither too cold nor too hot to support plant and animal and aquatic life? Why is there a very discernible food chain on planet Earth that keeps man and beast alive but without overpopulation? Why does our planet contain and reproduce the uniquely life-giving gas of oxygen at such an abundant rate? Why is there such a thing as rain to water our crops and to fill the reservoirs from which we get our drinking water? Why is planet Earth so uniquely suited to the existence of life? Because God designed it that way. He did not create it to be a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited, verse 18. There's no other explanation for planet Earth's uniquely life-giving, life-sustaining characteristics, but that it was designed for just such a purpose. So both the intricacy and the life-sustaining power of the created world, verse 18, practically cry out to us that there is a God and that he is not hidden, verse 19. And this is the point to which all this discussion about the earth is leading up. The fact that God's existence, no matter where we look in the universe, is so patently discernible is proof that God loves to be found. Let me say that again. The fact that no matter where we look in the universe, God's existence is so obvious is proof that God loves to be found. The God of the Bible loves to be known and understood. He loves to be found. He's not spoken in secret. 
He is not hiding from us. You don't need to go on pilgrimage or learn a secret technique in order to discover his power and his wisdom and his goodness. The very heavens themselves, we're told, are declaring the glory of God. And the earth, day by day, pours forth the knowledge of the Holy One. The magnolias and the crocuses and the bumblebees and the Big Dipper and the sunset and the power of the human mind. All of these are God's ways of blurting out into mankind's contrived game of hide and seek. Here I am. That's what God is saying everywhere we look. He is crying out through the image of God in the little girl behind the chair. Here I am. He's calling out to you through the lens of the telescope. Here I am. He's whispering by means of the tiny little acorns on your front lawn. Here I am. He's speaking to you as you observe the dexterity of your own five fingers. Here I am. He's chanting with every bite of food you take, perfectly suited, all the needful vitamins and minerals to keep you alive. Here I am. I am the Lord and there is none else. God is not, of course, somehow in or part of the carrots or the acorns or the fingers any more than Leonardo da Vinci is inside the Mona Lisa. But da Vinci communicates something about his brilliance and his skill and even his personality through the Mona Lisa. And God is doing the same thing everywhere we look. The carrots, the acorns, the fingers are not part of God. God is not in them, but he does speak to us through them. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Do you see? The fact that God even created the heavens and the earth to begin with. The fact that he formed them in such a way that we could live and breathe and see his presence and power obvious to us all around. The fact that he created us to enjoy all of these splendid advertisements of his creativity and his kindness and his power. All these things demonstrate that God loves to be found. We do not have to trek to some dark land to find him. We do not have to know any deep secrets in order to know God. He loves to be found. And he's created an entire universe where the footprints and fingerprints by which we may find him and search him out. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. God is conspicuous in the world. That's the burden of verse 18. But now, from verse 19, and perhaps even more profoundly, I want to point out to you that God is not only conspicuous in his world, but God is also conspicuous in his word. God is conspicuous in his word. Word. He's not only made himself known in the things, verse 18, that he's created and formed and made, but according to verse 19, this same God has also spoken. He has spoken. He's given mankind his word, verse 19, which is an even more profound and vital revelation than what we see in his world. Now, why is that true? Before we look at what verse 19 says, why is it that God's word is an even more valuable revelation than what we can see of God in his world? Well, think again about the world. It is true that from the things that have been made, Paul says, we can discern a lot about God. We can see his existence most of all. We can understand some of his divine attributes, Paul says in Romans 1. 
For instance, looking up at the stars or down at the dissected frog, it's clear that there's a creator and that this creator is intelligent and powerful, right? Who else could design such marvels? We can also tell from creation that the creator is a God of wisdom. The food chain and the ecosystem work as well as they do because the one who fashioned and sustains them knows what he's doing. Paul also said to a crowd of pagans in Acts 14 that the created order demonstrates the goodness of God. Paul says he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Food, rain, and so on prove that God is good. So there's a great deal we can know about God simply by looking out our windows in the morning. And yet coming back to my point here, If all we had were the heavens and the earth to declare the glory of God, we would not have nearly enough. For as perspicuous as creation's testimony is regarding a handful of God's attributes, heaven and earth cannot teach us, for instance, that God is holy, holy, holy. Nor can we look out our windows in the morning and determine what it would look like for us to be holy, as God is holy. Similarly, the heavens do not declare that God is jealous or avenging of sin. The earth cannot pour forth knowledge that God is everywhere present or that he's all-knowing. Nor would we know that God is sovereign simply by looking at the world around us. In fact, the world around us, coupled with our finite understanding of it, might actually leave us thinking that God has left certain things to chance if all we had to look at was the world. No, if we are to know that God is sovereign, omnipresent, omniscient, jealous, holy, God must speak. He must tell us things which we would never see and never know with our own five senses. If we are to know what God expects of us morally, God must communicate that to us in his own word. And most important of all, if we are to know that God is love, if we are to know the forgiveness of sins, if we are to know a restored relationship with God, if we are to know the hope of heaven purchased with Jesus' blood, we cannot see these things in nature. We must be taught them from God's own lips. We could spend our whole lives studying the stars. We could spend our whole lives becoming the greatest oceanographers or geologists or meteorologists who ever lived. We could know all the principles of biology, all the rules of chemistry, all the laws of physics. We could be anthropologists extraordinaire, knowing all the mysteries of the human psyche and why people are the way they are. And if we did those things, we would powerfully and clearly see in all of our observations of the created world the wisdom and the power and the goodness of God. It would be an amazing thing. But I submit to you that none of these disciplines, none of these studies of creation would ever tell us that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Apart from the words of Scripture, no amount of Isaiah 45, 18 kind of observation of the world could speak to us of grace, of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. As we sometimes sing, your voice alone, O Lord, can speak to me of grace. 
And apart from that voice, no plant or animal or human or star could ever preach the cross to us, could ever proclaim the resurrection to us, could ever urge us to believe. For that, we must have not only God's world, but his word. Now, don't hear me wrong. We do well to study the heavens and the earth to allow them to declare the glory of God to us. And some of us ought to consider the lilies, as Jesus said, far more often than we do. And yet the fact of the matter is the lilies cannot tell us how to go to heaven. The black-capped chickadees don't preach Jesus to us. The moon cannot urge us to believe on his name. No, faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, and hearing by the word of Christ. So yes, the created order speaks loud and clear about many invisible attributes of God. It speaks so clearly, Paul says in Romans 1.20, that men, women, boys, and girls are without excuse when they reject the God that the heavens declare. But while heaven and earth can tell us enough about God to leave us without excuse, they cannot proclaim to us the forgiveness that we cry out for when we've come to the end of our excuses. It's the voice of God alone that speaks to us of his love in Jesus. And therefore, what a precious gift we have when we read here in verse 19 that God has spoken. And that he has done so conspicuously. I have not spoken in secret, he says, in some dark land. Far from it. God's word is not hidden. It's not obscure. It's not difficult to comprehend. That's what he's saying here. God did not speak to mankind in the tongue of angels, but in the common speech of everyday men and women. He has not ordained that only one copy of his testimonies be bound up and kept in some high and holy place, but that copies of this word be made and disseminated all over the world. He's not spoken in secret in some dark land, but out in the open for all to hear. That's what he's saying here, and I want to help you think that out in three different categories. First, let's remember that God's word to ancient Israel so long ago was not spoken in secret. Probably that's mainly what is in view in the immediate context of verse 19. God's word to the Jews in times of old was not spoken in secret. When they sat at the base of Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments came to them in Exodus 20, They did not come to them, first of all, on tablets of stone that only a few people could see at once. Do you remember how the Ten Commandments first came to the people of God? In an audible voice, caroming down the mountain. His statutes were open and laid bare for all the people to hear. And even when God began to pass his words along through Moses... It's significant that he ordained that Moses write them down and that the Levites continue reading them aloud to the people for generations to come. The word of God, in other words, was not merely for the religious professionals to pour over. It was for all God's people to hear and know and obey and love, even at the beginnings of the Old Testament. Think also, though, about what we now have as the written word of God. Think about the Bible. These words were not spoken in secret either. In fact, it's interesting to note that many of the biblical authors, many of the men who wrote down God's words, lived right under the noses of some of the great kings of the ancient world. Did you ever notice that? Much of the Bible takes place and a significant portion of it was written within the realms of some of the greatest superpowers in world history. Babylonia, 
Persia, Rome. Why did God choose to put his people in those places and have his word written in those places? I'm sure there are many reasons, but perhaps one is that God never intended that his word merely be a handful of scrolls tucked away in some hidden cave in Israel, but that the whole world would know his power and glory. And so his people were standing in the presence of kings and emperors. The Bible was not written to use the words of Paul in a corner because God himself does not hide in a corner. God loves to be found and known and loved. Truly, this is also why God ordained that the New Testament be written in Greek. Greek was the ancient language that is much like English today. The Greek language was spoken all over the known world. It was the language that you needed to know to communicate in business and to communicate in education, just like English is today. Did you ever think how amazing it is that the New Testament is written in that language? That God wrote the New Testament in the most accessible language possible? Why did he do that? Because he did not intend that his word would be kept a secret, but that it would be published and proclaimed to the masses. So Paul writes his letters in English, and people can read them in Rome. People can read them at the other end of the empire. It's an amazing thing. God did not record his works, verse 19, in the language of some dark land, spoken by only a few thousand people in some backwater province. God recorded his words in the most widely spoken tongue of the ancient world. And I say that God's word is conspicuous because God himself loves to be found. The same things that we've just said about the Bible's location, where it was written, and the language it was written in, we can also say about its lucidity. God's word is not only conspicuous because of where it was written and in what tongue, but because of its overall clarity. God wants you to understand what you read on the pages of this book. And so, by and large, the words of the biblical writers are not difficult to grasp. Peter admits, yes, that there are some things hard to understand, but the main message of the Bible is not so, is it? The life and death and resurrection of Jesus are simple enough to be understood by children, are they not? The Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 23, John 3.16, Romans 5.8, Ephesians 2.8-9, all of these things are as simple and as plain as plain can be. God's word has not been written in such a way as to be kept a secret, verse 19. It is plain enough for every man and woman and boy and girl to read and know and memorize and love and believe and obey and treasure. God loves to be found. And so he has written us his word. And we know, yes, there are certain things that we can only know if he's written his word. But praise God, he's written it. He's spoken to mankind, verse 19, and he's not done so in secret. He has spoken both in his precepts to ancient Israel and in his word written and recorded for all mankind. He's spoken in the most accessible, conspicuous way. I've not spoken in some secret, dark land. He says, I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. No, no. 
I love to be found. And let me say finally regarding God's word that he's spoken clearly and conspicuously, not only to ancient Israel, not only in his written word, but he's spoken clearly and conspicuously in Jesus, his son, who is called the word made flesh. God, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. In the word made flesh, John 1, 14. Jesus is the radiance of the father's glory, Hebrews 1, 3, and the exact representation of his nature. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the father, John 14. He is the full and the exact revelation of God to our souls. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, Colossians 2. And therefore, in this Jesus, we see the perfect communication of God's wisdom and power and holiness and sovereignty and grace and love. In this Jesus, we have the pattern for what it will mean for us to be holy as God is holy. And in this Jesus, we have both the words and the purchase of eternal life. And the point I want to make is that even this word, the word made flesh, and perhaps especially this word, is a conspicuous word. When God chose to speak to us in Jesus, he did not do so, as Paul said, in a corner. No, Jesus came, we're told, in the fullness of time. Jesus came at the precise moment when his words and his story might rapidly disseminate across the world. Jesus came during what was called the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, when most of the known world was open to free and easy travel, to exchange of ideas because of the power of the Roman Empire, such that the gospel of Jesus could spread like wildfire without having to cross really any national borders. He came also during that period when a great percentage of the world's population understood the Greek language in which his life and words were recorded. He exercised much of his ministry in one of the great cities of the ancient world, Jerusalem, and he died, as the poet George MacLeod put it, at a crossroads so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. I tell you that when it came to God speaking to us in his son, he did not do so in secret, in some dark land. No, the son of God taught publicly. He did his miracles publicly. He was crucified publicly, as we read in Romans 3 earlier today. Over 500 people witnessed his resurrection. According to tradition, his original 12 disciples fanned out telling the story and the implications of his life and death and resurrection from India to Great Britain. And Paul, his great missionary, had the privilege of preaching Jesus' name even to Caesar himself. And all of this because our God loves to be found. He wants people to know his mercy. He wants people to know his love for sinners. He wants people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation to seek for him and to find him. And even in modern times, God is not speaking to us in secret in some dark land, is he? He's seen fit to have this book translated into over 2,000 languages, including our own. And every time you open this book or hear it read or sit under its preaching, God is crying out to you, here I am, here I am. Behold your conspicuous God. 
behold the God who loves to be found. I am the Lord, he says, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Therefore, verse 20, gather yourselves together and come. Gather yourselves together and come. Do not think you need to go somewhere to find a God who is hidden. No, no, he says, rather simply come to the God who is not far from each one of us in his world and especially in his word. Gather yourselves and come, he says, to the God who loves to be found. Do not think you need to go on pilgrimage to some holy site. Do not try to find God by gazing into your navel at some mystical retreat. Do not be convinced that you need to learn some new spiritual technique in order to truly draw near to God. Do not look for him in a painting or a statue or the architecture of some beautiful church building. And perhaps most dangerous of all for us, do not presume that knowing God, really knowing him, is too difficult for someone like you. And therefore, simply allow yourself to be satisfied with lesser pleasures. No, no. Put away your doubts, Isaiah says. Put away your idols. Put away your superstitious ways of coming to God. And gather yourselves and come to the God who loves to be found. Draw near together, he says. God loves when we find him. And if you will open your eyes and your ears, you will see and you will hear the heavens declaring the glory of God and the earth displaying his handiwork. And if you will open your Bible, you will hear God himself speaking to you and calling out to you, here I am, behold your God. 